If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, meet Steve Fredette, the co-founder and president of Toast, which powers restaurants with point-of-sale, front-of-house, back-of-house, and guest-facing technology. Steve holds a BS from MIT and began his career at Indeca, which was acquired by Oracle. Steve co-founded Indeca's mobile commerce business, building it to over $10 million in revenue in two years. He is also a mobile app pro who created the first Flickr and, and ShowBuy.com apps. He started working on Toast in 2011 and currently leads product and innovation initiatives. Toast has over tens of thousands of restaurants on the platform, has raised a whopping $850 million in venture capital, and was recognized by Deloitte as the third fastest growing tech company in North America. Let's welcome Steve. Hi, Steve. How are you? Very good. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you, and I want to just dive right in and start with how would you describe Toast? For most people out there listening, they've heard of Toast, but let's just go ahead and in your own words, how would you describe Toast to a layman? So we're a, a restaurant technology company. Uh, we sell all sorts of software and hardware that helps restaurants uh, run their businesses. That includes things like the point of sale where the wait staff or the uh, server will take your order, includes things like online ordering, gift card programs, loyalty programs, inventory programs, payments, uh, allowing uh, guests to pay, payroll, team management programs, uh, the, all, all sorts of software that help restaurants run their business. So I'm going to go back to the beginning. In 2011, there was some version of an aha moment, and your initial idea was more of a mobile app for dining out. Walk us through the evolution from the first aha moment to then now owning the full restaurant stack and how that evolution came about. So like you had said in the intro, we had my co-founder Amon and I and um, my twin brother, uh, who was Toast first employee. I love it. You got to keep it in the family. <laughs> <laughs> He's a pro. We had started the Indeca mobile product. So we knew a lot about building mobile sites and we knew a lot about commerce technology. And so then when we got acquired by Oracle, we felt like, okay, we'd been wanting to do startups for a long time. We've been talking about startups. Mobile commerce really was a startup within a startup. And now it was time to go and branch off and do our own thing. What we're going to do, and that's the classic question, I guess, of many entrepreneurs, what, what are we going to work on? What are we going to build? We spent probably three or four months just thinking about different ideas. Amon's brother was running product at Hulu. So we played around with all these different ideas around TV. Ultimately, I think, decided we knew nothing about TV. We weren't in New York where the advertisers were. We weren't in LA where the content producers were. What were we doing trying to start a TV business? Forget that. Let's do something where we have some knowledge and experience. Well, that's mobile commerce and enterprise software, B2B software. We did, however, you know, the, 
little bit of a rejection against our experience at Indeca. Big, big enterprise software selling to Walmart, selling to Home Depot, million dollar contracts. We didn't really want to do that. We didn't want to have a big enterprise sales team. And uh, we also thought all the Silicon Valley companies got to do all the cool consumer tech startups. And so we wanted to do something cool and consumer and not enterprise. It was like a rejection of the past experience we had. So we had those two things going. How do we leverage our past experience, but how do we then do something that's um, that's cool and consumer? I think that was a little bit of a, the thinking at the time. And we ended up thinking that restaurants were ripe for innovation. We would go out to restaurants a lot and we would look at the technology that they had and it just looked really antiquated. I mean, you'd have these screens in the restaurants that looked like they were built in the 1990s. We learned later they were built in the 1990s. And Micros was the first, uh, well actually Aloha was the first Windows 3.1 system, came out in 1993 and then Micros followed suit with uh, the product that they were still primarily selling probably even today. So it was old technology, we knew that. We had seen what Square was doing with the credit card reader on craft fairs and food trucks and farmers markets and stuff like that. We knew that they were out there. We knew that were very horizontal. We saw what they were doing. Square had something called the Square Wallet at the time that they shut down, you may remember that. So we also saw what Groupon had been doing. And we saw that Groupon had really risen and fallen primarily up front within the restaurant industry. Yet it wasn't a good solution for restaurants either. We also saw Indeca as a company struggle with whether or not we were a horizontal technology platform company or a, or a vertical solution company. And our experience had been that Indeca's strongest success was always within a vertical, within retail e-commerce. And the mobile product showed us that too. It was a product that we could upsell into a strong brand within retail e-commerce software. And that helped us to drive that $10 million of of revenue that we talked about. We also had done a partnership with a company called Hybris, which was a big commerce platform, ended up getting bought by SAP. We were their exclusive US uh, distributor of that software in the US. That sold really well, again, because we had a sales team and a brand within that uh, retail e-commerce technology vertical. So we had seen the experience at Indeca, how the, the power of a vertical company and, and that vertical strategy, and we had seen a struggle with the horizontal strategy. And of course, we also saw the rise of Salesforce.com and Indeca was not a software as a service company. We sold a perpetual license and a maintenance contract, traditional enterprise sales approach. So we knew we had to do something SaaS. We knew mobile commerce. We wanted a vertical strategy. We had seen from Groupon how big the restaurant vertical was and how the restaurant vertical was underserved by companies like Groupon or by the POS companies that we would see when we would walk in. And we saw Square with the horizontal approach and knew that it was foolish to try to compete with Jack Dorsey who had already probably raised $200 million and could probably raise another 200 million in his sleep to try to take a head on horizontal approach made absolutely no sense and we had to do something vertical. So we originally said, we're gonna go after full service restaurants only. And investors didn't love that pitch so much because the TAM was a little smaller and we had no payments business at the time. And so the software that we were projecting, we were like, we're gonna make $1,500 a month selling point of sale. We originally thought that made sense. That, that was something in our, in our mobile commerce past. That was a commerce platform. Yep. We liked that. But what we would get feedback from investors is like, well, how, how are you gonna get restaurants to switch? This is like their lifeblood, right? Like they're not gonna rip this thing out. Super sticky, super hard to get in. $100 a month, like you're never gonna make any money at that price point. It's just gonna be really hard. And 
it's a small market. And there seemed to be a lot of competition. There was a lot of iPad POS players at the time. It, it felt like a really crowded market. We got lucky in that we started a couple years later than those competitors because the Samsung Android tablet had just come out and we had the opportunity to choose whether we should build on Android or, or, or iOS. Having done mobile web, Android and iOS for Indeca mobile product, we felt that Android was the best choice, both ease of development, quality, flexibility within the future, price point on hardware potentially being lower or being able to build custom hardware now has been a really important part of our, of our hardware strategy for handheld terminals, POS terminals, payment devices. Android's been a great thing for us. We just got lucky in picking it because it just happened to work from a timing perspective. So a lot of things in there, we, we originally was thinking about POS. And then we decided that that was gonna to be too hard. So that's when we switched to doing a mobile payment app, which just didn't work. And then we switched back to POS a year later. <laughs> so I wanna go back to those first customers. So, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, selling into restaurants can obviously be really challenging. And as you just mentioned, you're up against large incumbents, you, switching costs are really hard. How did you convince restaurants to switch? Initially, there was a few different pieces of the value. One, it was just cheaper. And it's always good to be 10x cheaper. People talk about 10x improvements are really important for startup success. We, what we realized as we started getting into this space and spending a ton of time going door to door, knocking on restaurant doors, talking to restaurant owners, trying to get them to buy this mobile payments app that nobody wanted to buy and spend time with us on. And we learned that they, they one of the restaurant owners that had piloted our mobile payments app had spent $40,000 on his point of sale system, putting it in last year. We're like, we thought we'd just make $100 a month. Holy crap, there's a lot more money in this point of sale thing than we ever realized. It's really expensive. Now, a lot of that was on the install and the hardware and not necessarily the software, but it was a very expensive system. And we said, well, with commodity, low cost Android hardware, we can put the whole system in for $4,000 or less. So there was sort of this 10X difference in cost. That was a very compelling thing for restaurateurs. The next thing was the fact that it was in the cloud. The ability, it seems simple, but the ability to get reports and configure the system from your phone when you're anywhere, anywhere you happen to be, at home on your laptop, restaurant business is really hard. It's a 24 seven business and restaurateurs are spending all their time in that restaurant. Oftentimes, any time that they can get time back for their family or to be able to multitask while they're at home, sitting on the couch with their phone to be able to change the bar line because the keg just ran out and the bartenders calling them frantically saying, I need a new POS button for the, the new keg or being able to look at how the revenue is doing right now in real time from, again, from outside of the restaurant. We'd have people say, I can finally go on vacation because I can be looking at all the reports on my phone on the beach. Those things really mattered from an operator perspective. And then cloud also made it, again, lowered the cost of support, something that would have been a $200 service call that could have been fixed in a minute once you went down to the basement where the point of sale server was sitting. You could now call us, we would log into your account, same as you could from the internet. We'd see what the problem was, we'd fix it. A minute later, we push a button, your, your system's up and running again, and away you go. So it was, a, it was a lower cost upfront hardware. It was an easier install because the technology just built in, not built in 1990, and it was an easier, lower cost in, in terms of support and, a, and then a better experience. So cloud had, was a big factor. And then the third thing was this sort of all-in-one and the consumer angle to it. We had 
online ordering um, very, very early on. We had the gift, uh, a digital gift card program as well as a physical gift card program, a digital uh, credit card linked loyalty program. We had credit cards built in. We had um, the ability to flip the screen over and, and offer a customer a digital receipt or a digital tip. Right after that, you could ask if they wanted to sign up for the loyalty program or you could do the same thing with a handheld. We had handhelds really early on. You could bring the handheld to the table and have the guests go through a whole digital payment experience. And so th those things were very compelling for restaurateurs to be able to, they could see that they were able to get themselves into the 21st century with that technology. So I would say it was a combination of those three things, the lower price upfront and ongoing, the SaaS and, uh, and the consumer and, and the all-in-one bit. What I love about this, your passion for the, the fact that you're making the lives of your restaurant owner so much better obviously comes through. What year was it when you started thinking to yourself, wow, this is really working. What was the kind of aha moment where you said, oh my goodness, this is bigger than we thought. It's actually really, the traction's picking up. This is working. We can go build something even, even more special than we thought. It's a good question. I, I think once we shifted to point of sale, it was fairly clear that, that there was a lot of demand there. Uh, the, the, I always give the example, we'd go door to door and you'd, you'd be lucky when talking about mobile payments to get two restaurant tours to spend two minutes with you. As soon as we started talking about making a better system for which they use every single day, all day, that they didn't like what they already had, like you'd get 20 restaurant tours to come to Amon's basement for two hours and print out all their POS reports so that they, they, they just tell, can you build this? Can you build this? Can you, can you see the excitement in their, in their response? I, I think that's a, that was an important moment. Like I'm a big believer that you don't really have to build anything to understand product market fit. You just have to talk to customers. Customer development is way more important than product development in assessing product market fit. Now you got to have a product to actually build, to sell something and have a business. It's got to work. It's got to scale. That turns out to be really hard when you have something like point of sale that really can't go down because it, if it goes down on a Friday or Saturday night, the restaurant loses a ton of revenue. Scaling a SaaS platform for anybody who's scaled a high volume SaaS platform with four nines availability, it's not an easy thing to do, but you got to have product market fit. And you can, I find usually by identifying who your target customer is, finding out what they need, finding out what they get excited about and customers vote with their time. If they won't spend an hour with you, it's hard to get them on a call, a second call to spend another hour with you, then maybe they, the likelihood that they'll buy something from you is even lower. I want to repeat what you just said, which is you don't even need to start to build something to really understand product market fit. You just really should obsessively talk to customers. I like how you summarize that. I, I want to transition to, you know, you guys have over now the history of the company, you've raised $850 million. What was your strategy around financings? What would be the one or two gems of insight you would want everybody out there to know that you've learned? Well, so financing is not the only answers. Plenty of people will tell you that over-financing a company can cause a lot of problems and that, that are hard to solve later. It can, you can be a, a addicted to that financing. You can never structurally make your business sound because you've always got lots of cash. So it's certainly, you, you have to be careful about that. I always felt that it was a bit of a strategic imperative to scale. I, I felt we were going after a very big market. Restaurants are a big market. We had strong competition. If, if we didn't raise money, we weren't gonna be able to capture enough market share and build a strong enough product to succeed in the long run. And, and then by the way, the other thing is 
because we did our own payment processing, we didn't have the channel that most of our competitors did. The traditional channel in point of sale was the payment processors. The payment processor had thousands of people that could, were going door to door for them, whether that was through bank branches in every single town or whether that was the independent agent channel that literally had thousands of independent sales agents selling payment processing door to door to every single small business in the, in, in the US or the world, I suppose, for anybody that has that model else, elsewhere. That's a really hard channel to compete with. They have scale and size. All of our competitors had access to that channel. They didn't have the monetization that we did by doing the payments ourselves, which meant that they couldn't invest quite as much in a consultative sales process or in a very deep restaurant specific product, but they had a huge sales advantage. And so we sort of felt like there was this race because we couldn't go through a, the payment channel. We did partner with Gordon Food Service early on. We're partnering with US Foods now, and that's a, that's a great channel for us. But, but it's also not a technology channel and, it's, and it wasn't the traditional point of sale channel. And so it, it, it's, it's, it supplements us, but we really needed our own direct team, which meant we needed salespeople in every single city in the country. And that was just gonna take capital to build. Got it, that's incredibly helpful. I wanna transition now, Steve, to COVID. First, let's just talk about how do you think COVID has fundamentally changed restaurants? And then we'll come back to some of the things that are obvious 10 years fast forward. But how do you think COVID's changed restaurants permanently? Certainly from our vantage point, digital ordering technology is, uh, is people's perspectives on it have changed. Restaurant tours perspective on it was, it was, it was a nice to have. In fact, technology in general, many restaurant owners would say, look, we're, we're restaurant people. We, we want to cook eggs, right? Like we, we don't, we're not technologists and it's not the most important part of our business. It's a secondary piece. I, I think a lot of restaurateurs have changed their tune on that saying now technology is a must have in particular, a digital presence. So I, I think that that's a big shift. I don't think anyone's going to want to be caught by something like this again, even in a situation a year from now, if there's a vaccine and, and so on. I, so I, I do think that, that, uh, that digital ordering is here to stay. I, I think, Restaurants will want to make sure that they're prepared for something like this. Again, again, same thing. One one piece is digital technology. The other one that's perhaps a smaller factor, but diversification. So should I keep a lot of restaurateurs have done retail sales, they've added retail sales, or they've added meal kits or sort of those types of things. And I think a lot of restaurateurs will try to keep those on their in their product mix in the future. To try to expand their revenue options, the, that they will keep a lot of that grocery meal kits, at-home take kits, et cetera. Possible, yeah. I think that's a more minor thing. I think by and large, the biggest thing I worry about is restaurants in downtown areas. I think the biggest unknown question right now is how do commercial zones fare? And if employees find that through this process, working from home remotely over Zoom has worked pretty well, there's some general consensus that people will work from home a lot more than they did in the past, which will reduce demand for commercial real estate, which will reduce demands for restaurants who were in those commercial zones. So I, I think that is here to stay. I, I think the rest of restaurants haven't fundamentally changed all that much. We still haven't found a newfound love for cooking. I suppose well, some many of us have found a new found love for cooking, I suppose. We, st we still don't, don't create the, the quality of the whole totality of experience, right? The food, the experience, the hospitality, 
the service, all of those things. It's just, we like, you know, I don't think uh, our desire for restaurants as a society is, has changed all that fundamentally. So if we fast forward a decade and let's use a decade, so it's really far out, what seems obvious to you in restaurant tech? We started doing mobile commerce and trying to build a mobile payments app and a mobile ordering app. And now here we are so many years later, we just launched order and pay at the table. And um, that's that's seeing a great uptick. We have the ability to scan a QR code and the QR code shows up in the receipt. That doesn't let you order it, but that's a great experience. Uh, these are the things, things I've been talking about these for years in China with WeChat, you can scan a QR code and that that hasn't hasn't come here yet. But this idea of the, the phone as the remote control for the world and as part of that, the restaurant being part of the world, you know, I think that that's kind of a, a cool, fun experience. It's sort of a magical experience. We talk a lot about Disney. Our head of product is a big Disney fan. So uh, we talk about creating magical experiences and hospitality experiences, much like the first time you probably tried a ride-sharing app. It was sort of a magical experience using your phone to, to sort of make the whole experience seamless is great. And I think that that's exciting. So with that, I think comes all the transaction, more transactions now being digital and the sophistication of all the tools that e-commerce giants of the world that, that my experience from Indeca had, Walmart and Amazon and Home Depot and Nike store and Disney store and all these players that had tremendous now ability to understand their customers. Uh, we, we, we don't realize how anonymous most restaurant customers are. Your regulars, everybody knows their regulars. They come in and you know them and you recognize them. But we, many restaurateurs will say, 90% more and more of my customers, I have no understanding of who they are. And in a digital world, that, that completely shifts to a world where you now know a lot about your customers. Privacy questions aside, right? There's a lot of things that you can now do and there's a lot of democratization of, I would call it democratization of technology coming from the biggest retail giants in the, in the e-commerce world that, that now can be available for the small restaurateur. And I think that's uh, pretty exciting. I want to spend a little bit more time on that, which is what the future of hospitality will look like. So pre-COVID and, you know, let's just call it early 2020, you walk into a restaurant, you know, maybe you've used a, an app to make a reservation, you sit down at the table, menus, uh, you order, you still credit card, pay, you walk out. And oftentimes many of us, you know, I eat at the same handful of restaurants because we love them and they don't get smarter each time. They don't say, oh, you know, Alexa Von Tobel's coming in, which means we should have X dish because she's the only thing she's ever ordered here. Tell me a little bit more. I mean, I'm... I love restaurants. I, I love the ritual of them. I love leaving my home, going on the walk to them, driving to them. Um, it's a whole experience. And I do believe that tech is going to dramatically change the experience to make it far more delightful for the customer in the future. But we're far from that. And I would love just to get a sense of what do you think the future of hospitality could look like? I, I think that there's certain, I like the jobs to be done framework and Clay Christensen framework that, that's a, a great one. And so what is it, what is the job a restaurant is doing for you? Um, the date night, the family night out from the house. I want to get out of the house. Uh, the, the drinks out with friends. You can say that again for everybody across the planet right now. <laughs> the work interview, right? I, I, I'm going to do an interview over coffee or lunch or a drink or, or dinner. Um, all sorts of, of, of events 
for which the the restaurant is doing it is serving that purpose and i and i think many of those are not fundamentally disrupted by technology i want a third starbucks they talk about the third space and and restaurants are sort of a third space in that in that regard in other in other ways food also is a is a necessity too so in that case sometimes the job to be done at a restaurant is i just need really I need sustenance. I need something fast and easy and quick. And if it tastes good, that's great too. And I'll, I'll have, a, I'll prefer that. But actually, I'm, I'm more driven by convenience. Uh, and technology is really good at, at providing that. So whether that's delivery or kiosks or order ahead on your phone and pick it up when it gets there. First time I tried that Panera Tudato experience, it was, it was great. Saves me from waiting in line and nobody likes waiting in line. And so I think that technology can drive great amounts of convenience. And then on the, the jobs that are less about technology, the date night, the family night out, technology I think gives the restaurants the ability to serve those experiences, to do that job much more effectively by reducing some of the administrative tasks that a, a server or a restaurateur used to have to do. If I used to have to spend eight hours running payroll and now I can spend 10 minutes or 20 minutes running payroll. What can I use that time for now in terms of training my staff as a manager? If I used to have to spend, you know, five minutes running back and forth between the server and the, or for, between the table and the point of sale terminal and back and forth again, running your credit card, putting the tip in all that, you know, giving you a pen because I forgot, I forgot one, whatever. Those are just administrative tasks. They don't fundamentally, enhance the, the concept of hospitality and the way I make you feel as a guest and the, the way I, I, I know my, my menu so well, or I know um, what things go well together. I know you or, or I just, the pleasantries, the human interactions, we're social creatures and you want more time with your server, not less because the server's off at the POS terminal. Um, so I, I think that's where technology can really enhance those experiences. Um, this, the, the sort of surprise and delight stuff. If we know that you've been here three times and you always order this dish, maybe we have it. Maybe we know we, we can just we say, "Hey, Alexa, welcome back. Would you like your regular?" I mean, that's a delightful experience, and I think that's the kind of thing that you want you want out of a hospitality experience. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. What are the areas adjacent to restaurants that are obvious to you that like Toast won't go after, but are just things that you can see happening in the future? I mean, I think you've seen a lot of disruption in retail as well. I can't count how many times, how many packages I've gotten delivered from Amazon in the last six months here. Uh, you know, so I think, I think that's fascinating. I'm, I'm a, a big fan of, of what the future may hold with, with AI. And so Autonomous delivery is really interesting to me. Uh, robotics is sort of really interesting. And um, 
if you think about restaurants being both retailers as well as manufacturers, they're manufacturing on the fly. Um, you know, the automation trends that have come in from manufacturing over the last couple of decades, as that as as automation technology becomes better and goes down the commodity cost curve and goes up the sophistication, technology sophistication curve, you know, I think that's an interesting thing for us to watch, you know, where where robotics play in not just restaurants, but adjacent segments, certainly see Shopify buying Six River Systems and uh, investing in, in robotic automation of, of logistics and warehouses on the retail side. So I think that's, um, I think that's pretty interesting. And then of course, being in, in food, I, we spend a lot of time thinking about the future of food. Uh, some people would describe me as a agro nerd, thinking about the future of our food ecosystem. And I'm a big, uh, I've got a lot of interest in, in cellular agriculture and what's coming out of that revolution. So think about something that's grown faster, more exponentially than Moore's law. DNA sequencing is one of the few things that you can point at that's grown even faster or, or reduced its cost even faster than uh, semiconductors. So that's really interesting at what's going on in that space too. So the beyond meats of the world and the, the is, is, a, is a trend worth following and that, and that goes really, that goes really deep into the food ecosystem, I think. Steve, I could talk to you for honestly ever because I want to ask you a hundred more questions about the future, but I want to I want to transition a little bit to you. What do you think has been your biggest lesson as a founder to date? If you had to go and pay it forward to everybody out there listening, what's the one thing that you just really feel like is you 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 were like, wow, I I, I learned this one thing and I deeply believe it's critical for founders to know. Well, I already gave you my one, which was talk to customers obsess over customers. That's the number one thing. But the second thing I would say is, and maybe this goes to maybe one of your questions about fundraising strategy as well. One of the things I think that's always been helpful in our fundraising strategy is telling a big, telling a, a five-year, like having a really concrete five-year vision, understanding how you believe the world will go and maybe even further out than, than five years, start, you know, start out 10 years and work yourself backwards to five years. Five years is important to uh, that you understand that the dynamics, the specific dynamics of your particular industry and how go-to-market's going to work and how sales and service and everything else is going to work and your competition and everything. Um, but I think you have to tell a, a, a big story. And I think that's aiming big, thinking about the long-term, super important in my mind, understanding strategy, how, how, how the long-term shifts, because it's, it's always easy to try to go and go fast. And we always, I always talk about offensive versus defense, defensive strategy. It's one thing to win a market. It's the other thing to keep that market once you've won. And it, it, it winning might take a couple of years and for the, however many customers you win in a couple of years, but, but defense is a, is a 20 year game, creating an economic moat. Warren Buffett always talks about economic moats, an economic moat as defined by Morningstar is 20 years, I think something like that. So you got to really think long-term and, and not everybody does. A lot of entrepreneurs are thinking small. They're thinking about some niche idea and, and aren't thinking maybe how it's going to play out over five or 10 or 20 years. And, and I think that's a super important, super important to do. You come from an engineering background. How has that made you more successful as a founder? En engineers are often data-driven. I went from coding to uh, spreadsheets, I guess, in, in some ways. And so uh, 
you know, there's an analytical mindset to your sort of trying to think about engineering the business and, and, and instead of uh, code, it's people and business models and things that you can put into a spreadsheet. What are the personal hacks that you have that help you excel? So if like there are a few things that you've learned over the last decade that have made you better and it could be anything running, sleeping, meditating or, or something else, something more unique. What are your hacks? Uh, definitely. I like sleep. I think that the hours you put in are not everything. Certainly they are a multiplier uh, if you put in more, but the difference between 80 hours and 40 hours a week is only 2x. If you can be 2x more effective, it, the difference people talk about 10x engineers, the, 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 there's a 10x difference maybe in your, in your execution and your performance on many tasks. If you're tired all the time, like, and most people will say you don't get the same quality of output in, from 80 hours than you do. There's diminishing returns, right? At a certain point. So I, I think sleep is super important. I, same, same thing for college. Like I would never cram the night before a test that takes away from my sleep. Like I'm not going to perform as well on the exam if I'm super tired that I need to get the knowledge before that. I never pulled all nighters. Sleep's too important. What's the thing you're most proud of? The thing that you really feel just, if you go to bed at night, you can think to yourself and like, wow, I can't believe that that happened. Often I'm, I'm most proud of what we've been able to do with the team and people who've made incredible career changes and, and career success to the jobs that we've created through the process and, and the growth that people have had through it and, and their experience and the relationships that have come out. It seems silly, but like there's, there's some, I'm like, these people are in a relationship because of me. They're now married. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> they met at my company. I brought them together in some small way. I mean, I can't take credit for these things. I know. So that's why it's kind of silly, but, but there's a lot of pride, right. In, in, in the human aspect of, of building a company. Uh, I really appreciate that one. We, we had a few marriages come out of LearnVest. And when I look back on it, I, I sincerely, I know how you feel. You think, wow, this special, you know, long-term relationship has happened. Um, so I totally get that one. Um, okay, on the quick fire round, um, what's your favorite interview question? If you're trying to really get to know somebody, what's the thing that you think is the Steve interview question? I, I like to talk through what people have done and try to really dig into what they're passionate about. What are you most passionate about? I think we have a great mission. I, I think we, we are a, a mission-oriented company. We want to change the world. I've always wanted to change the world, so I get excited out of that. How can I make an impact, make a difference? What was the coolest moment that ever happened to you at Toast? For you guys all said, holy smokes, I can't believe that just happened. What was it? Yeah, meeting Al Gore was a lot of fun, or meeting Danny Meyer. There's some really cool moment. You get a little, you know, celebrity, celebrity crush on those things. I love Danny. We had him on the podcast. He's, you know, Danny could be everyone's mentor. He's just the best. Um, that's awesome, Steve. Last question is, other than Toast, what's one cool app, startup, something new that you're excited about that you want to pay it forward to that entrepreneur or, or a new product that's out there? I don't know if I would call it a startup, but I love Gingo Bioworks. I'm, I'm a big fan. Like I said, uh, Ag, ag nerd or or I love cellular agriculture and I think they're driving a lot of change in sort of uh, engineering biology and I was actually a chemistry major at MIT so that one to me is really fun so, so I would point out that one but there's some smaller stuff around um, autonomy that I think is also pretty exciting recently met the founder of Optimus Ride another MIT company doing autonomous vehicles I, I thought that was a pretty cool company too 
That's awesome. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more about Toast, check out toasttab.com. And I'm sure you've seen it in every restaurant you've been in. Um, and join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. And let's thank Steve for joining us today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much.